We all have questions. Questions about culture, relationships, science, people, death, life, religion, politics, ethics, and God. And where do we go with these questions? Our smartphones. But what about the questions our devices just don't know the answers to? Am I a good person? Bringing up your search history. Wait, 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 no, no, no. What does Eucharist mean? Euchre is a common card game from... No, 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 no. What does Eucharist mean? Bob Euchre is an actor and former Major League Baseball player. Where do babies come from? You should ask your mom that. Don't seek answers from your device. Bring your questions here. And yes, you can ask that. Well, hello, church. I want to welcome you to week four of Can I Ask God, a journey where we've been looking at some of the questions we wrestle with about God and life. And hopefully over our journey, we have given some handholds that allow us to navigate some of that complexity. We received a lot of questions and are not able to get into all of them. We found some reoccurring themes and tried to give some handholds in that. And the reality is we're going to hope to still address some of these things down the road, but to be quite honest, we don't have the ability to get into everything that was brought before us, but we tried to address some of those things. And we looked at heaven and hell. We looked at salvation and suffering and mental health and suicide. You missed any of that. You can find them online at heritageqc.com. Hope we've given you some handholds. But quite honestly, more than giving answers, it has been my prayer that you would find God in this. I think, quite honestly, that most often God wants to give us himself in the midst of our questions more than give answers. I mean, he's gracious and gives answers, but I think in the complexity of life and the questions we have, he wants to give himself more than to give the answers. And that remains my prayer even as we wrap up this series today. Now, we're going to address more stuff down the road, but one of the reoccurring themes that came through the questions really just centered around culture, things about culture. And I today want to address two things out of that stream or out of that theme, two specific things that I believe have, will, and are undermining the health and unity of the church of Jesus and our effectiveness as witnesses in the world. One, and the first one we're going to get into here in a little bit, has to do with the dynamic between men and women. And as we lean into this, I, I want to just acknowledge that it's going to be a bit more academic. It's going to be more fact over feeling. And you may be inspired, you may be challenged by it, but this time is about teaching and not telling. Teaching and not telling. And I want to acknowledge up front in the conversation that it is likely I will leave you wanting. Wanting more information, wanting more conversation, wanting more discussion or details. It's likely I'll leave you wanting. And I hope that wanting will drive you to study scripture on your own, to get into the Bible and figure some stuff out, because that's all we're doing, we're studying scripture. It's possible I'll leave you wanting in this conversation, but I will not leave you lacking. But rather to give some framework, some more handholds, so that we know how to live rightly before God and in relationship with others. So it's a limited conversation, but it won't be our last conversation. So having, though, identified two specific hot-button issues in our culture and day, uh, I realize I've actually set myself up with a bit of complexity. 
uh, two things that I believe have gotten lost in translation, almost like a big game of telephone that it was once said, but then translated and carried over and moved that somewhere along the way we lost our understanding on these two things. And picking two, I've set myself up for a bit of an impossible task. Honestly, I wrestled significantly with preparing this message, not, not for the content, not for the answer, not for the beliefs or values associated with it, but, but with how to speak to two relevant issues appropriately, comprehensively enough in one sermon. Because quite honestly, honestly, these two subjects could actually be entire sermon series unto themselves. So I realize I'm going to leave you wanting, but I hope that drives you to dig in and study a bit more, engage in conversation along the way, not to ultimately build or dig a theological foxhole by which we lob doctrinal grenades at one, each, uh, one another, but, but that we actually know how to live in love. Now, in order to step into this further, I want to make two disclaimers. I am working under the basic premise that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that he speaks from it, he speaks to us through it. He can speak through Holy Spirit, he can speak through experience and through creation, but he also speaks through this. It is living and active. We need it to make sense of life. And if you struggle with that concept, we can discuss it later. But this time is not set up to provide a defense of the Bible, but rather a definition from it. And I encourage you to read the Bible. I encourage you to find a translation you can engage with. Maybe it's electronic, maybe it's hard copy, doesn't matter, just read it. We need the Bible to make sense of life. And if we're going to embrace what I'm saying about this, it presupposes that God's perspective is more important than ours. That his thinking is more important than our thinking. His, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So what he thinks matters more than what we think. It presupposes that. And if that is not your perspective, that's not your view, if you don't share or hold that view with me, this may be more difficult to embrace in the information in the conversation that we're having. But I want to invite you to lean in anyway. Lean in with an open mind. Walk the conversation with me. Now, if you're someone who doesn't struggle with submitting to the authority of God in your life, not, don't struggle with deferring to his perspective, then, then this conversation becomes a lot less complicated. Because when he's our Lord, he determines what's important. He defines what matters. That's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two is that this conversation is driven by the Bible and Jesus. Not agenda, not politics, and not party. It's important to engage the issues of our day, to be responsible citizens, and I'm I'm so appreciative of those who have the courage and calling and, and boldness and humility to step into those spaces, vote for them. This is not that. There there is no agenda but Jesus in this. Him first, him last, him above, below, him beside, behind. It's Jesus. Which really gets us to our first thing, first moment. I mean, the idea and concept of first thing being first is, is a really good life practice. It's good for how we engage with our money, how we engage food, how we engage relationship, keeping the first thing first. And some of you may have seen or heard the illustration of if our life is represented in a jar and we've got sand and water and stones and some bigger rocks to put in it, if we put the sand in first and we throw in the water and then we throw in the stones and we get to the big rocks, they don't fit. So it's really a an idea of keeping the first thing first, because if we take the big things first, the most important things of life first, we put those big rocks in first, then we add the small stones, and then we add the sand, and then we add the water, it actually all fits. It's the right order. 
first thing first. And I want you to keep that in mind, understanding that the jar represents our life as we engage these two subjects. Keeping the first thing first allows us to make sure everything fits together. Now, as we step towards the two subjects, we're really talking about culture. And in our culture and in our day, there are many things shifting in our culture. And quite honestly, as long as humanity is going to be part of culture, it's going to keep shifting. Because our depravity pulls culture down, but Jesus is trying to pull culture up. It'll never stay the same. Culture is always shifting and moving. And one of the things that's been shifting recently is civility. We have all, you and I have all experienced a lack of civility, either in social media or face-to-face with somebody where somebody's just been mean, been rude, it's just been painful out of their pain, they're lashing out. There's an increasing lack of civility in our world, which is creating a foundation and a platform by which we devalue people. And if we're going to break that cycle, we actually have to back up and get to God's original design, His original intent. So let me just share a couple of things, and you can put this in your note guide right at the top, right at the beginning. The reality is when we understand who we are and our identity, we are loved. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit created us. We are created by God out of love. Because He loved us, God created us, the race, human race, one race, humanity. Now, you want to blow your mind for a minute, when you think about creation and us being created by God, it wasn't just God the Father, Jesus was there. Scripture tells us that nothing was made that has been made without him. Everything was made through him. You read John chapter 1, Jesus was there at creation, mind blown. But it was out of love that God created us, the human race, and as he created human race, he placed in us his image so that we are image bearers. We bear his image. And when he created us as humanity in his image, he did it as male and female when we get to gender. Male and female. There are just two, male and female. So as loved, created humanity with the image of God in us, male and female both created by him. Beyond that, when you start to understand who we are, we can start to step into the reality of ethnicity. There's lots of variety in humanity. God has made this beautiful kaleidoscope represented among humanity. It's beautiful, lots of ethnicity. But the reality is, we can start to, start to think about, okay, what, where we're from, our nationality, our, our country, where we're from, and then we can start to think about state. And then we can think maybe about our community, our city that we live in. And then we think about our neighborhood and our street. We can ultimately then think about our home. Listen, this is the order of all things. And the question that pops up when we start to look at the order of all things is where is value? Where does value start and where does it stop? See, we can start to look at this list and start to say, well, we, we actually feel like more value is down here around alignment in this space and maybe drifts up more. But my friends, the reality is, is that God says value starts here. Value starts here out of him who is love, the one who created. Now you may look at this list and say, well, hang on a second, you got some divine things here, but then you got some human things here. You may even start to blur this and go, okay, this was stuff that God does, and then people make decisions, and sometimes it's bad decisions, but, but the reality is whether it's divine or decision, this stuff starts to lay out our identity, and you may want to move one or two in order or sequence, but this is the order of all things. And the question goes, where is value? Where does it start? Where does it stop? God says value starts here. Where do we say value begins and ends? God says it starts here and it never ends. See, we, we kind of look at this stuff, and we can pick country, we can pick nationality, and we say, you know what? It's the USA and everybody else. 
<laughs> it's the USA above everybody else. Except we'll add in the Brits and the Aussies because we like their accents. <laughs> and they maybe we'll add in a few other countries that are useful, but everybody else is down here, it's below. We're, we're more important than them. Where's value start and end? We can even start to get into the space of, of male and female and start to establish hierarchy that God never really intended to be there and we diminish the value of either one. See, our God is a God of love and he works, always works from love, but here's our problem, we tend to work towards love. We want to feel love, but he always offers love. And he says value starts here. And the truth is we can often want to move the line but every time we move the line, we're playing God, and we're not God. We want to define value out of spaces of geography and ethnicity and culture. And we can make our own decisions on those things, but in the end, he gets to determine value, and he says value starts at the top. We tend to start value at the bottom, in greater alignment in that continuum, more sameness versus what God says more about that geography and culture and ethnicity than, than the image of God in all of humanity. But if he's Lord, he gets to decide, amen? So today I'm gonna to apply this concept to two hot button issues. One primarily in the church and one both in the church and outside the church. Each fractured each with complications from line moving. Now to be clear, I'm not asking any one of us to set aside what's important, but I'm asking all of us to consider the order in it and to make sure we are more fully aligned to God's order, his perspective, his posture, because it's first thing first. That's the only way it all fits. See, we tend to limit rather than love. And we draw lines where God does not and we reorder the order of all things, either out of preference or out of ignorance. But if we're truly going to live in this life, truly living requires truly loving. Truly living requires truly loving. To, to fully live in this life requires us to fully love. That life to the full that is available requires us to ultimately truly love in the spaces that we exist. And the difference between us and God is that he starts from love and moves from it. He doesn't function apart from it, but we start at the bottom and we move towards it. We do it with him and we do it with others. He moves from, we move towards. So with that understanding, let's get into the first subject and it is the dynamic between men and women. The dynamic between men and women. And we live in a time where women are more boldly sharing about their victimization and experiences at the hands of men. And the Me Too movement serves as a warning call to all of us that relationship between men and women in this world is horribly broken and distorted. But Jesus offers a path and we need to know it. We need to know it. So bottom line up front in this conversation is this reality that the Bible directs us to include women at every level of kingdom investment. The Bible directs us to include women at every level of kingdom investment. For men and women to serve together at every level. Now I realize for some of you, you think, I didn't even know this was an issue. This was a point of conversation. But for some of you, you've actually been taught a different perspective. You believe the Bible prohibits what I just described. And some of you are feeling this bubbling up and desire to decry me as a heretic. And you're even thinking about walking out. But hang with me. Before you check out or lean away, understand that 
A heretic is someone who teaches something that scripture does not teach. And that is not me. I have no intent or desire to explain away anything in scripture. I respect God and his word way too much. I value scripture too much to disregard, to explain away, to glaze over, or even shy away from anything that seems complicated or difficult, but to rather dig in deep enough to get to some semblance of understanding. And one of those spaces is in the understanding of the identity and role of women, and specifically in the church. Now again, if Jesus is our Lord, he gets to decide what's important, if he's Lord. So with that in mind, let me just frame why this is a conversation at all. Because for some of you, you don't even think about this, but for some of you, it's been a tension in your dynamic and the journey with the church. So if you want to track with this, you can draw some of this on the notes section in your note guide. But the reality is that God, the Father, has a lot to say about men and women. In Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, creation, we're going to get to this in a, in a moment. Genesis chapter 1 just, just declares what God actually does in that space. Genesis chapter 3 brings in the reality of the fall where everything God intended got fractured. God has a lot to say about men and women. He's the creator of them. But then we have Jesus who also had a lot to say about men and women. And specifically, his relationship around women was more significant than many of us realize. In fact, let me just, I wrote down some of the things that Jesus did in his dynamic with women. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus protected women. Jesus empowered women. He honored women publicly. He released the voice of women. He confided in women. He was funded by women. He celebrated women by name. He learned from women. He respected women. And he spoke of women as examples to follow. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Now, here's the reality of why this starts to feel like a tension. Because there's this guy named Paul great missionary and church planner, disciple maker, follower of Jesus, made huge impact in expanding the gospel around the world. But Paul actually says something in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 that seem to fly in the face of what I'm describing over here. And not only that, but he says something in Galatians chapter 3 that seems to be in opposition to what he said in the previous two sections. And we go even beyond that. There's a whole list of other people who have interacted around the subject matter and people who live significantly for God and for Christ. You have Phoebe and Priscilla. You have Junia, who in Romans chapter 16 is identified as one of the greatest apostles by Paul, and she was a woman. So what ends up happening is we start to try to figure out what do we do between men and women? Is it men versus women? Is it men greater than women? With the inputs from all of Scripture, one story comprehensive, all the Word of God, how do we reconcile the tension? Well, quite honestly, a significant portion of it goes back to being lost in translation. How many of you have ever had a Sour Patch Kid? You like Sour Patch Kids as candy? Raise your hand up, Bettendorf, got it? Oh, they're good. They're sour, then they're sweet. Right? Sour then sweet, Sour Patch Kids, great candy. Now listen, here's the thing. Sometimes things get lost in translation. And so this is what a normal bag looks like. But I found a bag that was prepared for marketing in, a, in another country over in Europe. And here's what happened in that space. Not Sour Patch Kids, but very bad kids. <laughs> very bad kids. So to be sour than sweet is bad. Oh, not out of space over there. Okay. Things get lost in translation. It happens. And we start to understand the dynamic that I'm describing and the gap and the inability to reconcile, it connects back to that. So let's get back to the beginning. I don't want to lose God's intent. I don't want to lose his desire. So let's go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where we find God said, look, I created all these things and I created humanity. I created humanity, men and women. 
So let's take a look, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and on. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, us, in our, that's the Trinity, the Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The reality of what God did, our identity, and God is in the business of, of redeeming. God is in the business of fixing things that never should have been. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the garden dynamic is how it should have been, but that all got fractured and blown up with the introduction of sin. Anything less than what God originally set is a direct result of that brokenness and that fall on the fracturing of sin. Because in the beginning, God, man, and woman were in fellowship together. God made both man and woman in his image, not as subsets. Now, one of the arguments against women is that whatever came first should rule. That because man came first and woman came second, the man should rule the woman. Now, that seems on the surface to be like, okay, pretty logical, but it actually flies right in the face of common sense. Because anytime we take a principle or identify a principle in Scripture, we need to be able to apply it comprehensively, not limited. And so when we try to apply that concept, it gets fuzzy. Because if, because if man should rule woman because man came first, well, then we continue that thought out, then man should be ruled by an animal, perhaps a monkey. And the monkey should be ruled by a fish, maybe a clownfish. And the clownfish should be ruled by a fern. Yeah. It doesn't work. And some of you are like, oh, come on, Sean, don't be silly. This is, that, that order thing only applies to humanity. Okay, great. Well, let's jump to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Take a look at this. And then God blessed them. Who's them? Man and woman, both. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the, over the, every living creature that moves on the ground. Listen, there is a command for men and women to rule together. And to prohibit women from leading is against the command. Who came first is problematic. Not to mention, we're not even getting into the reality that that Jacob, the younger brother, ruled over Esau, the older, or that Joseph ruled over all of his brothers, including Reuben, the oldest, and David did the same thing and actually ruled all of Israel. Hierarchy by who came first is lacking. Even Jesus said, the first will be last and the last shall be first. So it's important to understand and go back to the reality that God said men and women are to rule together. But let's move on for a second because the next argument is the idea that, well, woman was created to be helper, not leader. Great, let's, take, let's get into this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Not in your guide, it's up here on the screen. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Can I get an amen? Amen. I don't know why the women always say that louder than the men, but okay. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God says, yeah, he looks at all creation, can't find anything suitable, and actually makes woman a helper now, here's the problem with our understanding of this. This is not a glorified secretary. It's not a person to do the bidding of men. The literal word is help meet, not help mate, which is something that we have within our church dialogue and vocabulary. I don't disagree with the concept, but it doesn't come from the Bible. It's not in Scripture. This is help meet, M-E-E-T, help meet. And the literal word in the original language is azer, E-Z-E-R, 
Azer. It's used 21 times in scripture, two times to refer to Eve, three times to refer to military rescuers, and 16 times to refer to God. Azer. It is not a weak word. It is a powerful word. Military ally, military rescuer. It is strength. It is the one who stands with the other, with the other. Now, the very common hymn you may have sung before, Come Thou Font, talks about raising our Ebenezer. All right? You ever sung that? I go, what does that mean? <laughs> it's this. It's Azer. Ebenezer, it's referring specifically to God's protection over Israel in 1 Samuel 7 as he protected them from danger, that he was, he was the, the stone of help. Ebenezer. Never once is Azer used to communicate subordinate helper. It's used 16 times for God, and we would never position God to be our subordinate helper. We would never position God to be silent around us and do our bidding. And when Azar is translated helper, it easily slides to subordinate. But remember, man was in trouble. It wasn't good. They needed help, so God made woman an ally. Not above or below, but beside, to rule together. So, then what do we do with Paul's words in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians? Well, I think it first starts by understanding the difference between a special rule and a universal requirement. Special rule, rule versus universal requirement. But let's just go look at what, Timothy, what, what Paul says in Timothy and 1 Corinthians in case you're not aware or understand what he does say. Here's what he says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority or usurp authority over a man, specifically husband, she must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. First Timothy. Let's go to First Corinthians. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now listen, these seem really clear, very specific, in black and white. And some of you read it, hear me reading it, like starting to squirm in there. And some of you start to like want to pick up your swords and go to battle, either for or against, whatever you think this means. And, but listen, if we're going to understand scripture, it's always got to be in the context of the whole. Never to cut out one thing that we don't like, it's uncomfortable, we don't want to deal with it, we're just going to cut it out. Or to take a piece and elevate it and focus on it in a way it never should be isolated to. We're not cutting out or isolating to, we're trying to understand more fully. And if we're going to understand this more fully, we've got to dig, dig deeper. And we need to understand that both of these moments are about restoring order in worship, not establishing a new order. It's special rule for circumstance, not universal requirement. See, Paul was not moving the line. He was restoring order in worship, not changing the order of all things. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 40 in 1 Corinthians, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, Paul often is unfairly called a male chauvinist, but he wasn't. He wasn't. The whole of his ministry proves that. He worked with women and served with women. Of the 28 people he specifically greets in his writing, nine were women. And of the people he actually commends, he commended more women than men. So what's the gap? 
it's context. There's confusion, things lost in translation. So you have to understand that at this time, and even today, women are free in Christ. Free to worship, free to prophesy. Specifically, Paul speaks to that. But they were not highly educated at this time, and Paul knew that. Jewish teachers and leaders would not teach women. Jesus broke that. He broke that with Mary and Martha, and he specifically engaged them in teaching paradigm. But on top of that, men and women in the Jewish culture didn't worship together. They were in separate spaces. They didn't sit together in separate spaces. And Paul knew that women in Ephesus, which is where he's writing to Timothy, and Corinth, where he's writing in first, for 1 Corinthians, the women were not educated and many were illiterate. And many weren't even Jews coming from a basic Jewish background and culture. They're actually coming out of a culture of goddess worship, which had its own distorted view of men and women where women were better and greater than men. So it's in that space that he's saying, if you're not trained or educated, don't interrupt those who are. Don't disrupt the gathering. In fact, talk to your husband later when you're back together. There's a difference between special rule and universal requirement. And the Bible directs men and women to partner at every level of kingdom investment. Now there's a lot more here. A lot more that ties back to Genesis 3 and other parts of scripture. But this is where I will leave you wanting. Not lacking, but wanting. Can't do it all in this conversation. And if you're still not sure, you're still kind of holding on to it, you're wrestling with this, you can go ahead and you can jump ahead to Galatians 3 because in that space you're going to find Paul declare that in Jesus there is neither male nor female. So we're going to get to that passage in a moment, but I actually want to get into the second subject with a little less time than the first uh, because it's, a, it's less complicated in understanding our biblical role, but more complicated in our world practically. And it's a bit more volatile. Not that I haven't done enough already in this conversation. But our culture is increasingly an against space. It's all about what we're against. It's us versus them. But my friends, the church, the the people of God are called and positioned by Jesus to be for. To be for people, to be for love, and to be for truth. And the truth is, immigration is an issue. Immigrants are people. Immigration is an issue. Immigrants are people. Keep it clear. Keep it clear. Two different lines of value. Issue for government. People for God. Immigration is an issue. Immigrants are people. And immigration in our nation is broken. The system is broken. It fails everyone. It fails the citizens. It fails the leaders. It fails law enforcement. It fails the immigrant. But remember, immigration is an issue. Immigrants are people. And be careful not to confuse the people with the issue. If we do, we end up moving the line. And then we play God. And we're not God. Now, I want to be really clear about this because I know it's a touchy subject and volatile. But I want you to understand that I have shed blood, sweat, and tears for my country. And I have lost friends under this flag defending its values and principles. I am proud to be an American. I am so grateful for the opportunities and blessings I have been given to be in this country. And as much as I love this country, I also recognize she's broken. Not perfect and made mistakes. But I still believe in her greatness. Although as sinful as her people. So I implore you not to dismiss or label me in this following conversation as anti-American or on the flip side, too ethnocentric. 
I offer this particular conversation as a follower of Jesus, one who loves his country yet sees her brokenness. And again, I say immigration is an issue and immigrants are people, which really positions me to ask the question, where do you place value in the conversation around immigrant? Where does it start and where does it stop? Where do you care and where do you no longer care? Is it by personal agenda, political agenda? Or is it under God's authority or government authority or just your own personal authority? When you engage the conversation, do you recognize the order of all things? When you engage in it, do you see the humanity or do you see the issue? Now again, I'm going to function under the presumption that God gets to decide this stuff, therefore humanity over nationality. And if we're gonna understand, we need to lean in understanding that. Because in this subject, we've actually borrowed from the Greek a word, xenophobia. Xenophobia, it's the fear of strangers, the fear of anything different or strange. But the reality about this is that the Bible turns xenophobia on its head when it calls us to philoxenia. Philoxenia, the love of strangers. It's the exact opposite of xenophobia, and in the New Testament, it's translated hospitality. And it runs much deeper than our commonly understood definition. The biblical definition is eager welcoming love of strangers. Eagerly welcoming love of strangers. Even strangers you might disagree with or feel afraid of. Just look at what God's instructions are to his people in the Old Testament, book of Leviticus. He said, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So again, he's establishing his authority. He gets to decide, and he's calling them to a, a specific line of value. Now you can say, hang on a second, Sean. That's the Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant and the New Testament, so the Old Testament doesn't apply. Uh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> but let's just, for the sake of argument, say that's the case. So we need to go to the New Testament to understand this. And we go to the New Testament, we find the words of Jesus. And what Jesus does in the New Testament is he doesn't just set a line of acceptance. He actually talks about how we treat immigrants and how it impacts our relationship with him how it sets an eternal trajectory, that even how, how, how we treat the immigrant is actually how we're treating him. Check this out. We're going to go to Matthew 25, where we find an extended teaching of Jesus. He's talking about sheep and goats. And he says to the sheep, you all come on in, you go to heaven, and you goats, you're out of here, you're done, you get to go to hell. And it's really awkward and weird, and they both go, why do I get to come, and why do I have to go? And in that dynamic, we understand the value of God and what God calls us to as his people. Here's what, here's what happens in the exchange with the sheep. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger? Stranger. There's, lo there's lots of words in scripture to define foreigner and, 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 and sojourner, but also immigrant. And in this space, we're talking about the immigrant described as a stranger. It's the word xenos. And, and, invite, you, and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Listen, that's pretty clear. Pretty clear. How to love, how to welcome, the need to welcome, the need to love in that space and the complexity of it all. Now again, there's several words for translating. 
the foreigner, stranger, sojourner, immigrant, but that word xenos in the Greek is very clearly stranger, foreigner, immigrant. And Jesus said how we treat them is a reflection and expression of how we treat him. And he ties it to our eternal trajectory. Some of you go, okay, Sean, that's fine. I can wrap my head around that. But Romans 13 tells us to obey authorities, to, to, to obey the law. Yeah, that's true. I get that. I know it's messy. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't move the line. Don't move the line. Look, we can do everything the Bible says about loving and welcoming strangers. Even go above and beyond and advocate for immigration law change, which we need to because the system is broken. We can do all that and still not break the law or encourage others to break the law. Everything that we could possibly do, the, the, very, the command to welcome, advocate, and love the immigrant is indisputable. But none of the things that we would engage in to do that are unlawful. It's not, to, have, to have a family over for a meal, to teach English, to hold a Bible study, to help their children do their homework, even give legal advice with proper government accreditation, none of it is unlawful. The only exception where a U.S. citizen can violate immigration law would be employing someone who's not qualified to work. There is no law against loving the stranger. The only law that actually matters, there's not a law to report the stranger. The only law that matters is the law of God, and his law is a law of love. And as a church... We're serious about fulfilling the biblical mandate around strangers. And listen, you can and you should pray through this. You need to get your head around this. You need to understand God's priority and perspective in it. Just don't move the line. Don't move the line. Quite honestly, I want us to be sheep, not goats. I want us to hear, well done, come on in. It's why we do what we do at the Esperanza Legal Assistance Center. See, in that space, we are not, let me say again, not, facilitating the Ill facilitating illegal immigration. We're providing honest pathways forward for people navigating a broken system who want to work towards citizenship. Criminal or illegal actions are not facilitated or tolerated. We're loving the stranger. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to just sit back for a few moments and listen from some of our own heritage family and their experiences as they volunteered as someone welcoming the stranger in that space. Take a look. My name is Brooke Sweeney. My name is Faith Nelson. My name is Claribel Ortiz, and I've been a volunteer at the Legal Assistance Center for about six months. Most of them come to the United States just looking for a better opportunity for them and then for their families. I just think that sometimes people with a negative attitude maybe haven't really tried to immerse themselves in that sort of situation and really become aware of more than what they hear um, on the news, because that's just a small part of it. I have seen and I have felt some of the other Spanish speaker feels when they come here for the first time. I know what these other people go through when they feel rejected or they feel like somebody's just pushing them aside. There are people here that um, are doing it the right way 
and that just want to be a part of what we have. So um, just recently, uh, there was a gentleman who came in seeking legal services. He was looking to adjust status. Um, in his case, he was looking uh, to change from DACA, which you may have heard about, um, to naturalizing and trying to become a citizen or start that path to, for citizenship. And uh, when he came in, he, we kind of recognized each other and um, took me a little bit to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But as it turns out, we had gone to high school together, we'd gone to junior high together. And in the consultation, um, he just got a lot of bad news. And he, um, he found out that he's probably not gonna be able to adjust status, um, that there's a lot of barriers in his path to, to do that. Um, and that's gonna be a big concern because his wife and his children are US citizens. And so um, no matter what happens to him, they, if, if there was a case where he got deported, they would remain here and he would have to leave. As he left, we just kind of had this moment where we looked at each other and uh, I just said, I'm so sorry, um, because it just broke my heart to know that this person who I grew up with, um, who I lived in the same community with, who has children and is just trying to live the same life that I have the privilege of living, um, and the only difference between the two of us is that he was brought into this country at two, and I was born into this country. And really, neither of those two things are in either of our control, but our outcomes are so different. Center has provided those in the Floresiente neighborhood and others like that have provided them with a voice that they didn't have before. And it just caused me to spend a lot of time in prayer um, over what happens in the Esperanza Center, over the lives of the people that it affects, and um, just reignited that, that passion and that hope that I have for immigrants in, in our country. And I am, I am so proud of the men and women who have been sacrificial in stepping into complicated space like that and, and being Jesus and loving the stranger. I, again, want to be really clear that our investments in that space or any other space, that we are not usurping a system, but lovingly working to help, find, help people find a way through it. And it's a broken system. That's common consensus, both sides of, of the aisle, both, whether what a political party or whatever agenda somebody has, everybody agrees that it's broken. But even in a broken system, the order of all things should never be lost. It should never be lost. I, it, it, it's broken, it's messy, it's complicated, it's, it's sad, it's frustrating, it's unfair. I, I get it, but don't change the order. Don't move the line. You are not God. 
It's complicated and messy. The system and people are broken. It's all marked by sin and people made poor choices. But if we're going to err, let's err on the side of love. There is no border control in the greatest kingdom ever, the kingdom of God. But there is a gate. The gate is Jesus. The only way into that kingdom is him. And the refugee and the wanderer, the vagabond, the outcast, the outsider are all welcome. Let's go to that Galatians 3 passage that I referenced earlier. Some of you jumped to it already and read it. Here's, here's what we read. And these are the words of Paul, same guy that wrote 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's the gate. It's the only way into the kingdom. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, nationality, slave nor free, that's status, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In him. Listen, that's the order of all things. I will encourage you to embrace his order. Not, not, it doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters what he thinks. In fact, it was St. Augustine who really said this well. He said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Woo. Amen? Hey, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what he thinks. He establishes the order of all things. And as God restores us to relationship, he actually positions us, the church, to become an oasis, to love as he loves. Where people don't have to manage sin anymore, they can be free. A space where broken relationships can be restored, healing can be found. It's the restoring the order of all things. It's a wonderful thing we get to be part of. And listen, men, men, do not, do not be afraid to empower women. Uh, for, for a significant portion of my life, I was because I couldn't explain the gap. I couldn't figure out how to connect the parts of Scripture. But don't stop short. Dig deeper in. If you're not making, this isn't fitting for you yet, dig deeper. Don't be afraid or ashamed to embrace God's design and to be for women. Jesus was. He was. And my, my sisters, women, listen, don't be afraid to step into your created design as warrior, ally, and daughter of the king. You bear his image. But do so with strength and humility. And I apologize for pain that you've experienced and the confusion of this. But I'm going to tell you, I make no apologies for empowering. Because this is not my idea, it's God's. And I will never apologize for what God does. Because if he is my Lord, he gets to decide. And quite honestly, last filling in your note, God, if you're still tracking, when Jesus is our Lord, he establishes the order of all things. He gets to decide. He establishes the order of all things. It's first thing first. It's, it's allowing everything to fit. And he can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. He's God. And, and there is neither slave nor free. Juno Gentile, male or female, in Christ, there is a place of unity. There is a place of restoration of relationship. There's a whole other conversation around Genesis 3 and the fall and sin and all that means. And we'll get to that at some other point. But ultimately, God is a God who moves from love. And so can we. So should we. So let's live with the trajectory of the whole of Scripture and the example of Christ. 
In fact, if we go to Hebrews, we can find this in Hebrews 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality, philoxenia, to strangers, foreigners, immigrants. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. <laughs> and that right there is a whole set of another. Can I ask that question <laughs> for another day? Listen, when Jesus is our Lord, he establishes the order of all things, not us. And my question is, what is it maybe in your world that you need to shift from being against to being for? Not by your preference and not by your opinion, but by his priority and his perspective. What do you need to, where do you need to shift in your local relationships, broader relationships, where you're, you're going to be for rather than against? See, we're a church where we're for God and we're for people and we're for his kingdom. We're not against culture. We're not against comfort. We just choose him over everything else. We're for life. We're for flourishing. We're, we're, we're for women. Where do you need to move from being against to being for? When Jesus is our Lord, he gets to establish the order of all things. It's, it's how we live and that's how we love. It's even who we love. So I, I hope you have heard my heart in this conversation. Our heart is a church. If not, let's make sure we talk. and Make sure we fight for that bond of unity and keep the peace with one another as we seek to understand the kingdom of God. In the end, listen, we get to decide what we believe. But we don't get to decide what truth is. God does. When he's our Lord, when Jesus is our Lord, he establishes the order of all things. So maybe you've wrestled in this and you've landed somewhere in perspective differently before and you're trying to figure out where to be now. Maybe you've suffered under some things lost in translation. In these next few moments, I invite you to, to just chase forward into the things of God, to understand your identity in him, and to never move the line. Never move the line. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that through Jesus, man, through him as gate, we can have life and life to the full. And I thank you that full living is actually fully loving. And you have loved us because you are love and you call us to love. So Jesus, help us to do that. If we need to deconstruct some thinking, help us. If we need to embrace with courage some things we've not embraced before, help us do that. Lord, we want to live in the fullness of the life you've created us as men and as women. God, I pray that you would bring healing into places of pain and brokenness in this. I pray that you would bring reconciliation in places of relational brokenness and fracturing. God, you are the restorer of all things, and you have called us to more. So in these spaces, work and move for your glory. Make us, lead us, call us into all you created us to be in the first place. Establish the order of all things in our lives. I pray this in the name of your son, in the name of our Savior, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.